Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Marie Antoinette. Now let's continue with our story about Marie Antoinette. The affair of the diamond necklace had its origin in a piece of jewelry that was commissioned by Louis XV in 1772 and meant as a gift for his mistress, the Madame du Barry. He requested that the royal jewelers Charles Bamer and Paul Bessange create a diamond necklace that exceeded anything previously produced. On spec, the two men took great pains to assemble a creation that incorporated a great number of exquisite diamonds in a staggeringly large and ornate necklace. Called the Slave's Collar and consisting of over 2,800 carats of diamonds, the worth of this necklace today has been estimated to be as high as $100 million. Unfortunately, the king died before this accoutrement could be finalized, the jewelers now stuck with a very expensive piece of jewelry and an extremely small pool of potential buyers, the most obvious, Louis XVI. But twice in 1778 and again in 1781, for one reason or another, both the king and Marie Antoinette declined to purchase the necklace. Unsold, this became the basis of an elaborate confidence scheme hatched by a socially and financially ambitious woman who called herself the Comtesse Jeanne de Lamotte. Married to a purported nobleman, Comte Nicholas de Lamotte, de Lamotte was the proverbial count of no account. The couple perpetually broke and unfaithful to the marriage. By late 1784, Jeanne had ingratiated herself as the mistress of the Cardinal de Rohan, not only a member of the powerful de Rohan noble family, but a former diplomat deployed in Vienna to the court of Maria Theresa. Unfortunately, his dissolute lifestyle and anti-Austrian bias earned him the antagonism of the empress, who in turn delivered her opinion of the cardinal to Marie Antoinette. Upon Louis XVI assuming the throne, de Rohan, most likely upon the urging of the queen, was hastily recalled, understanding that the cardinal was desperate to improve his status within the French court. Jean de Lamotte convinced de Rohan that she was well-connected to especially Marie Antoinette. In fact, through a forger, fellow huckster, and also feigned aristocrat, Armand Reteau de Villette, Jean was able to access the French court. She further convinced de Rohan that the queen had officially acknowledged her and that Marie Antoinette held her in high esteem. De Rohan then began what he thought was a correspondence with the Queen, receiving letters in return that were actually forged by Reteau de Villette. Blinded by his ambition, de Rohan did not hesitate. When Jean began asking for loans and even produced signed letters which requested that he help the Queen secretly acquire the slave's collar 
to avoid public and even Louis XVI's awareness of such an exorbitant purchase, an acquisition that might inflame hostility over royal expenditures even further. To add further credibility to the scheme, de la Motte and Reteau de Villette staged a nocturnal secret liaison between the cardinal and a woman he thought was Marie Antoinette. In fact, the two confederates hired a prostitute who resembled the queen, Nicole de Oliva, the three arranging to meet the cardinal in a remote corner of the gardens of Versailles. In the darkness, de Oliva, dressed fashionably, approached the cardinal, handed him a rose, and breathlessly intoned, you know what this means, the past will be forgotten, before quickly and stealthily retreating. Convinced that he was on the verge of a great political restoration, and even deluded enough to believe that Marie Antoinette was physically attracted to him, de Rohan now reached out to the jewelers, who were also blinded by their zeal to unload the necklace, with, unbeknownst to him, forged letters in hand from the purported Marie Antoinette, requesting that the cardinal act as her representative, a deal was negotiated whereby the necklace would be paid for in installments. Of course, the transaction was to occur amidst the utmost secrecy, a condition de la Motte could not emphasize enough. The necklace was secured by the bishop. He then was instructed to turn it over to an individual described as a valet of the queen, in fact, Nicholas de la Motte, who hastily fled to London. By the time the alleged count arrived, the diamonds had been pried out of their settings, many damaged during the process, but still able to be fenced. Jean de Lamotte briefly fended off both the cardinal and the jewelers by forwarding token sums as installments, but by July of 1785, with Marie Antoinette having never worn the elaborate necklace publicly, or reaching out to the cardinal to acknowledge his noble deed, and de Lamotte no longer making any installments, both parties decided that it was time to act. A letter dictated by the cardinal and signed and sent by Bamer was meant to subtly remind the queen of both her new acquisition and financial obligation. But Marie Antoinette was so baffled by the July 12th letter that after discussing it with her first lady-in-waiting, Henriette Campan, she burnt it, thinking only that Bamer was somehow trying to peddle her some more jewelry. Impatient and now alarmed by any lack of response, Bamer waited until the 3rd of August before showing up at Henriette Campas' residence. Campas was so shocked by first his insistent claim that the Queen had made such a Byzantine purchase and the details surrounding those involved that she decided against informing the Queen herself, advising that Bamer should take up the matter with the minister of the royal household. Several days later, when the Queen asked Campas why Bamer, who was now trying to meet with her personally, was so insistently pestering her, Henriette reluctantly explained the entire fiasco. An incredulous Marie Antoinette could not even conceive of such inappropriate behavior, especially on the part of the cardinal, someone she had not even interacted with in any way since his recall from Vienna. Unfortunately, both Marie and King Louis XVI subsequently decided on an official inquiry that was as confrontational as possible. On August 15th, a feast day, Cardinal de Rohan was formally dressed, preparing to celebrate Mass at Versailles. Instead, he was summoned to a private meeting with the king and queen. Initially, he was asked who requested he purchase the necklace on the queen's behalf, and where were the diamonds at the present time. 
He replied that through letters presented via the Comtesse de la Motte, he enabled the purchase, and he was under the impression that Marie Antoinette was in current possession of the necklace. He added that his only intent was to serve the queen as best as he could. Marie herself angrily interrupted, asking as to how he could even conceive that of all of the individuals who she might have selected to assist her if she was even inclined to purchase the necklace, why would she choose someone she had not spoken to in eight years and then interact with the cardinal through such an insignificant woman? Understanding that Marie obviously was not in possession of the necklace, de Rois then admitted that clearly he was the victim of a hoax, but relied on letters such as the one he produced during this conversation, in this case a note authorizing him to purchase the necklace. Louis XVI snatched the paper out of the cardinal's hand, and upon reviewing it became even more agitated. The missive was signed Marie Antoinette de France. All of official France would have recognized such a signature as a forgery, knowing that royalty only signed with a given name, and certainly not with the additional de France, implying that some additional qualifier was necessary. Cardinal de Rohan, a member of one of the oldest and most distinguished noble families of the kingdom, certainly should have recognized that. The fact that he did not bordered on the bewildering, so outraged was the king that after asking de Rohan to write down an account of his participation in the affair that included all the others involved, Louis ordered the cardinal's arrest. The cleric, despite invoking the names of all of his influential relatives, quickly found himself conveyed to the Bastille. Most of the other conspirators, even Nicole d'Oliva, were also arrested, save Nicholas de Lamont, who had had the good sense to remain in London. Given the opportunity to either throw himself at the mercy of the king or appear for a trial before the Parlement de Paris, one of the country's regional appellate courts, the cardinal decided to take his chances. The rest of the defendants were obligated to stand trial as well. On May 31, 1786, after a lengthy process that revealed all of the embarrassing details of the scandal, the Parlement published its verdicts. Nicole de Oliva was acquitted merely with a reproach involving impersonating the queen. The forger Reto de Villette was convicted, but merely banished from France, his worldly goods forfeited. Jean de Lamotte was convicted and received a sentence involving her public flogging, branding with a letter beginning with the French word for thief and life imprisonment. Nicolas de Lamotte was convicted in absentia, but in what was probably an intentional slight of Marie Antoinette, the cardinal was acquitted. He was forced to forfeit his offices, suffer banishment from the court, and apologize for his behavior. However, it was also clear that the court found the concept that the queen could be involved in such a decadent scheme and would also attempt to manipulate him by meeting personally in a suggestively romantic manner completely believable and conformed to her notorious lifestyle. This acquittal also is perceived by the public as an indication that all involved were merely scapegoats, and it was also assumed that Marie Antoinette was actually fully involved in the entire escapade. The pamphleteers went wild, satirizing the queen as a greedy, conniving, unbalanced nymphomaniac, a popular image now indelibly engraved. The occasion of the delivery of Marie's fourth child on July 9th, only days after the dreadful conclusion of the affair of the necklace, invoked none of the joy of previous births. 
the newborn, a girl, was named Sophie Helena Beatrix and was typically referred to merely as Sophie. But there was little celebration surrounding this event. Public scorn engulfing the queen was concurrent with a worsening financial situation that threatened to plunge the entire country into chaos. To combat this predicament, several of the king's ministers adopted a tax reform policy intent on equalizing any tax increases on all of French society and exempting the poor. Implementing this policy, which did not allow for any exceptions, including the church, required approval by all of the provincial parlement. To exert pressure on this government sector, Louis XVI convened a group that had not met in 160 years, the Assembly of Notables, members of the nobility and clergy nominated by the king, who were merely an advisory group that hopefully would collectively agree on the new tax policy, paving the way for the Parlement formal approval. Unfortunately, the Assembly could not even agree among its members as to whether the suggested reforms were appropriate. Convened in February of 1787, the Assembly degenerated into argumentative disagreement, unable to reach any kind of consensus. It was disbanded in May, having accomplished nothing other than numerous demands that the king convene the Estates General, a voting legislative body that also legally was only advisory, but was larger with representation from all three estates of the French people, the nobility, the clergy, and the commoners. Although his efforts were unproductive, Louis XVI was certainly aware that France was slipping into financial and societal ruin. Among foreign diplomats, it was understood that he was descending into both deep depression and alcoholism as a result. Marie Antoinette, although perceived as both drunken and promiscuous, abstained from alcohol, and aware of her husband's lack of focus, began to attend group policy meetings attended by the king's ministers. She also attempted to counter public sentiment by emphasizing her role as a mother. Any official portraits now included her family, with her son and heir seated on her lap. In June of 1787, such a portrait contained one less child, her daughter Sophie, having succumbed to tuberculosis before her first birthday. This tragedy and the public relations efforts did little good. The queen warned by the Paris chief of police not to venture publicly into the city, a riot the most likely outcome. Additionally, the convicted Jean de Lamotte was able to escape from prison and flee to London, immediately publishing a ghost-written memoir that alleged a lesbian relationship with Marie Antoinette. The scurrilous charges widely accepted by an already hostile public. The health of her eldest son, Louis Joseph, was also troubling. The child suffering from dreadful deformities generated from tuberculosis of the spine. It seemed clear that he also would not live much longer. As the child's health worsened, it seemed to parallel that of Louis's reign itself. On August 8, 1788, it was officially announced that the Estates General would be convened, a development that could only weaken the power of the French monarch. This announcement coincided with a worsening financial crisis that prompted the recall and reappointment of Jacques Necker as the Controller General, the official name for the government's Minister of Finances. He was forced to borrow additional sums to facilitate purchases of wheat to control the widespread famine of the winter of 1788-89, one of the harshest in decades. Negotiations over the composition of the French Estates General 
also proceeded during this time period, resulting in a much more representative role for the commoners involved. During these negotiations, Marie, overweight and no longer the radiant and striking beauty of her youth, began to sink into a melancholy feeling of foreboding and depression, with a belief that she personally could only bring misfortune to anyone associated with her, especially the king. She also felt that she would be blamed for any failure of the dynasty, regardless of the actual cause. On May 4th, the Estates General officially convened. A month later, on June 4th, Louis-Joseph finally succumbed, his death another blow, to both of his already despondent parents. The king and queen left Versailles for an official period of mourning. Perhaps this official avoidance of the Estates General was deliberate as the third estate of commoners began to boldly assert its determination to override existing royal and upper-class authority. On the 17th of June, the Third Estate by vote declared itself to be a national assembly, intent on devising a new French constitution. Three days later, when they attempted to reconvene, their hall of assembly was locked and defended by armed soldiers loyal to the crown. Their response was the famed tennis court oath, sworn by all members in a nearby indoor royal tennis court, the oath and affirmation of the National Assembly wherever its members convened, and a resolution that the Assembly and its members would never dissolve. Its sentiments were summed up by one of the Third Estate's most vocal and emphatic participants, the Comte de Mirabeau, who stated, We are here by the will of the people. We shall only go away by the force of bayonets. This was the first time that any popular entity directly challenged the French crown. In early July, in Paris, with crowds verging on open rebellion, 30,000 troops were mobilized to deal with any potential unrest. On July 11th, Louis XVI sacked Necker and other ministers and replaced them with individuals perceived as more conservative and anti-populist. Spontaneous riots began. Soldiers pelted with rocks, the situation worsening when these troops began to respond with rifle fire. This violence was perceived as Louis XVI attacking his own people, and further unrest focused on seizing weapons and munitions to arm mobs against the king's troops. This culminated with a successful and violent July 14th occupation of the Bastille, a prison, armory, and fortress in central Paris. Having returned to Versailles and told of this event while still in bed the next day, Louis XVI asked, Is it a revolt? A sympathetic member of the Third Estate who had come to inform him of the event, the Duc de Liancourt, responded, No, sire, it is a revolution. The rebellion would only gain momentum. On July 15th, the Marquis de Lafayette was named the commander of a newly created National Guard in Paris, an armed militia meant to replace the Royal Army. Many of its members were former soldiers or either belonged to disbanded army units no longer loyal to the king or units that mutinied in the chaos leading up to the insurrections in early July. Similar militias were formed around the country, all now sporting the symbol of the new regime, a red, white, and blue cockade or circular cloth badge attached to headgear. A new governing body was elected in Paris, the Commune, at its head, a new mayor was also installed, Jean-Sylvain Bailly. Other municipalities around the nation moved to establish governments intent on ignoring any royal office or privilege. In response, the king, 
with little leverage, confirmed the appointments of Lafayette and Bailly, agreed to remove the recently appointed ministers and reappoint Necker to his former position. On July 17th, he traveled to Paris in an attempt to calm the situation and even appeared on the balcony of the Hotel de Ville, the city hall, wearing the tricolor cockade. While this tamped down any additional immediate popular unrest within the royal family and royal entourage, these developments were considered an outrageous and untenable humiliation and capitulation. Relatives of the king were alarmed also for their own personal safety, resulting in the immediate flight of the Comte d'Artois, Louis XVI's youngest brother, and Artois' family. His other brother, the Comte de Provence, decided to stay at Versailles, not yet willing to acknowledge that the monarchy was doomed and understanding that any collective flight of the royal family would essentially end the Bourbon dynasty in its historic form. He urged Louis XVI to do likewise, and despite a discussion of the king and queen fleeing to the fortress at Metz near the Austrian border, Louis remained at Versailles. One other extremely unpopular entity connected to Marie Antoinette also decided that it might be wise to get out of town. In 1775, the Comte and Comtesse de Polignac, like many other members of the French nobility, visited Versailles to pay their respects to the new king and queen. Although aristocratic, the couple had fallen on hard times and were deeply in debt. The Comtesse Yolande Gabrielle de Polignac, was extremely pretty and immediately ingratiated herself with Marie Antoinette, who encouraged her to spend more time at court. The Polignac debt was quickly taken care of by the king, and upon the birth of Marie's first child, Gabrielle was named governess, a lucrative official position. The post also came with a palace apartment, in this case a luxurious spread of 13 rooms. Her husband, Jules de Polignac, also received several paid court positions, as well as the title of Duc de Polignac. Other family members received considerable pensions, paid out for virtually no responsibility. Because Marie enjoyed her company, Louis XVI was enthusiastic about such expense, if only to placate his wife. When Gabrielle's daughter married into another noble family, the king paid the dowry, equivalent to millions of dollars today. Marie Antoinette's affection for her best friend was further underlined by the assignment of one of the cottages constructed in the faux village of the Petit Trianon to Madame de Polignac in an area that was physically off limits to all but the most prominent members of the French court. Gabrielle's new son-in-law was immediately named captain of the guards, her brother-in-law ambassador to Switzerland. The de Polignacs became quite unpopular at court. They did their best to exploit their new positions and isolated other courtiers from Marie, as no one could enter her inner circle without the Comtesse de Polignac's approval. Their initial lowly status made their receipt of such largesse a point of deep resentment amidst the intensely status-conscious world of Versailles. This animus prompted external gossip about such extravagance, the de Polignacs hated by the public as much as Marie Antoinette herself, with no guarantee of their personal safety. The entire extended family fled the country on July 15th, one day after the storming of the Bastille. Public hostility towards the royal family briefly subsided until October of 1789. 
a spontaneous demonstration over the continued scarcity and high price of bread morphed into a march on Versailles, initially to demand food, but ultimately an attempt to force the king and his family to relocate to Paris, away from his seat of political power. Initially a group of women, the march was bolstered by many members of the National Guard. Lafayette left with no choice but to march at their head, as many threatened to desert and march anyway if they were ordered to stand down. Arriving in the early evening, the crowd designated a half-dozen women to meet the king in his apartments, the resulting exchange agreeable with a promise that provisions from the royal stores would be released. But throughout the night and early morning, a crowd remained and became determined to attack Marie Antoinette personally. This mob eventually killed several royal bodyguards and smashed their way into Marie's apartments. She escaped this violence only by accessing the king's apartments via a back passageway. It took the intervention of Lafayette himself to prevent further violence. The crowd was further pacified by the appearance of the king, queen, and children on a palace balcony but their removal to Paris was demanded. With little choice, Louis XVI and his immediate entourage returned to the capital in a procession that took seven hours. Neither he or his wife would ever return to Versailles. Instead, the king and his family would be installed in the Palace of the Tuileries, a formerly magnificent but now run-down ramshackle edifice on the Seine. Protected by the National Guard as well as their own bodyguard, the royal family no longer enjoyed the remarkable splendor of court life at Versailles. But their lives were relatively untroubled, and how exactly France should proceed politically remained a contentious and unsettled process as various entities attempted to develop a national constitution. What exact role the monarchy should have in such a new government remained debatable throughout this time period, especially in 1790. It was suggested to Marie Antoinette that she should covertly make her way to Austria, but she rejected any flight that did not include her husband. In February 1791, based on limitations and allegiances placed on the French Catholic Church and the determination of members of the monarchy to reject such revolutionary changes, two of Louis XVI's surviving elderly aunts, the Mesdames Tantes, applied for permission from their nephew, the king, to journey to Rome. They left their chateau at Bellevue on the outskirts of Paris on February 19th. Their departure caused an uproar, and they were detained several times during their journey, once when the National Assembly furiously debated whether or not to permit the exit, despite official assurances that the ants were merely interested in attending Easter Sunday Mass in Rome, Unofficially, it was perceived that they would not return. The princesses were finally allowed to complete their journey, but were subjected to extreme hostility until they crossed the border into Savoy, then officially part of the Kingdom of Sardinia and the current refuge of the Comte d'Artois and his family. Proceeding to Rome, they were greeted with great enthusiasm. Unfortunately, their flight intensified public animosity towards the remaining monarchy and the resolve that Louis XVI and his family be prevented from leaving France. By early 1791, Louis XVI was psychologically depressed, overwhelmed, and physically ill. Certainly his wife understood that the future in France for the entire monarchy was bleak and steps needed to be taken to safeguard not only the king but their son, heir to the French throne. Having rejected any plan to leave her husband behind, Marie began to urge her husband to leave the country. 
Louis XVI received a jolt of reality when his entourage was prevented from leaving the Tuileries to celebrate Easter Sunday Mass in a Paris suburb. Not only did an ever-present crowd stop the royal carriages from leaving the palace, the National Guard troops on site did nothing to facilitate this exit. It was clear that only a clandestine process would allow any future egress. The king finally gave his approval to the royalist general, the Marquis de Bouya, Count Axel Fierson, and the prime minister in exile, the Baron de Bretuil, to develop a plan for a royal escape. The most promising ploy involved a carriage ride of approximately 200 miles to Montmédy, territory controlled by the Marquis with troops still loyal to the king. Unfortunately, instead of employing several fast-moving carriages, the royal entourage opted for a much more cumbersome coach led by six horses, a vehicle that was sure to draw a great deal of attention. The coach would transport six individuals, the king, the queen, the king's sister Elizabeth, the royal governess, Louis Elizabeth de Tourzel, and the Dauphin, Louis Charles, and his sister, Maria Therese. Several dates were chosen and then postponed until finally the date of June 20th, a Monday, was selected. Although all six members of the royal entourage were able to surreptitiously make their way out of the Tuileries successfully, this process took longer than anticipated, and it was not until 1.30 in the morning that Count Axel Fierson himself delivered the party to the large coach situated at the city limits. The escape was further delayed when a stumbling pair of horses damaged their harness, causing at least another hour to be lost. By now, royalist contingents of troops stationed further along the escape route presumed incorrectly that the king had either failed or aborted the attempt. As June 21st dawned, servants back at the Tuileries discovered that the beds of the king and his family were empty, and the National Guard became aware of the escape attempt. News of the escape quickly spread throughout the country, and a large coach requiring fresh horses every 15 minutes would be an extremely visible vehicle. Still, the king's luck held until he reached the town of Saint-Menehoul, when he was recognized in the early evening by a postal official, Jean-Baptiste Drouet. Drouet and an acquaintance, aware that the coach's next stop was the town of Varennes, where a fresh set of horses and some royalist soldiers awaited the king, headed rapidly in that direction, arriving at about the same time as the royal party. Unfortunately for the fleeing royalty, when they arrived at Varennes, it was 11 p.m. The town completely closed down, and the bodyguards accompanying the coach with no idea where to find their fresh horses. In darkness, they began to knock on doors, hoping to locate the appropriate party. Jouet eventually alerted a judicial official of the situation. Townspeople were awakened and quickly barricaded the only route out of town. Although any local officials were reluctant to forcibly detain the king and his entourage, they also understood that letting him pass would facilitate his escape. The group of six were conveyed to the home of a prominent bureaucrat, where it was explained amicably that based on the unusual circumstances, it would be best to sort things out in the morning. Despite the obvious risks involved in not continuing to Montmédy, and the presence of loyalist troops who were also now aware of the king's presence and easily could have either threatened or even overwhelmed the presiding officials, Louis XVI vacillated, not wanting to be the individual who ordered a violent attack. As a growing crowd of peasants and local National Guardsmen began to collect in the village, any officers present also did not wish to provoke a violent confrontation. 
At 6 a.m., couriers from the National Assembly arrived with orders that the king and his entire party were to return to Paris at once. Despite the despair of Louis XVI, who was said to have lamented that there is no longer a king in France, and Marie Antoinette, who furiously raged at the couriers that they had no right to issue such orders, it was clear that the escape had failed about 30 miles away from the intended objective of Montmédy. Upon hearing this news, Boulia fled to Belgium, Count Fierson to Koblenz. The Count de Provence, traveling much more discreetly on horseback, was able to successfully flee to Holland during his brother's failed attempt. It took four days for the king and his party to return to Paris, accompanied by 6,000 National Guard troops, hoping to dissuade rescue attempts. It was ordered that anyone acknowledging the king verbally, either positively or negatively, would be flogged the intent to discourage riots or even assassination by mob. After the escape attempt, both king and queen were surrounded by National Guard troops at all times. Even while asleep, the royals were not permitted to close their bedroom doors. The hostility expressed towards Louis XVI and his wife did not go unnoticed by other European powers, especially Austria. Although her brothers, Joseph II and Leopold II, were deceased, her nephew, Francis II, became Emperor of Austria in March of 1792. Like most members of European royalty, Francis was more concerned about the effect the French Revolution might have on other ruling houses in Europe as opposed to any personal concern for his aunt. In August of 1791, he declared with Prussia official opposition to the French Revolution and a demand to reinstate Louis XVI. This and a formal military alliance with Prussia in February 1792 only exacerbated the situation. The Legislative Assembly of France declared war on Austria in April of 1792. Marie Antoinette, as an Austrian, was then considered to be an enemy of the country. The initial efforts of the French military were disastrous, and the king continually vetoed any directives passed by the National Assembly. As a result, mobs on June 20th possibly enabled by the National Guard, burst into the Tuileries, humiliated the king by forcing him to wear a red cap associated with the revolution, and threatened to kill Marie Antoinette, who avoided physical harm only by successfully hiding within the palace until order was restored. Despite this intimidation, the king refused to reverse his legislative vetoes. Austria and Prussia then released a military order by the commander of their united military effort, the Duke of Brunswick, that proclaimed in late July that if the royal family was harmed, Paris would be destroyed and the leaders of the revolution executed. This only inflamed additional hostility towards the king, with many calling for outright abolition of the monarchy. Marie Antoinette now firmly believed that her only hope for even survival was the successful invasion of these foreign powers. In response to the Brunswick Decree, thousands of regional National Guard troops poured into the capital, further inflaming the already volatile political situation. On August 10th, the inevitable and final storming of the Tuileries drove the royal family out of the palace, forcing them to seek the literal protection of the National Assembly in the building next door. 600 members of the Swiss Guard, among the last military units still loyal to the king, were brutally massacred by thousands of National Guardsmen and civilians. Although any female staff associated with Marie Antoinette were spared, some males of the royal entourage were murdered on the spot. 
While the palace was stormed, the royal family listened in silence as the National Assembly debated their continued existence. The monarchy was officially suspended, and by order of the Paris Commune, the radical entity consisting of elected representatives that administered the city of Paris, the royal entourage was ordered to be confined in the temple, a combination fortress and prison a demand that the National Assembly did not oppose. Thirteen individuals, including the king, Marie Antoinette, the king's sister, and the two royal children, were transported there on August 13th. Initially, the group was kept in the fortress portion of the building, not officially designated as a jail, but confined under immense security. They certainly were now considered prisoners. On the 19th of August, the commune removed all eight non-royal members of the entourage, most were eventually released unharmed. One Marie, Princess de Lamballe, a close friend and confidant of Marie Antoinette, who had faithfully remained with the Queen during her recent ordeals, was dragged before an impromptu September 3rd commune tribunal at her new prison location. These tribunals, a violent response meant to liquidate any prisoners formerly associated with the monarchy, were convened as a result of the Austro-Prussian offensive that initially made great progress in its intent to overturn the revolution. Asked to swear loyalty to the new government and to denounce the king and queen, the princess de Lamballe affirmed the former, but refused the latter, stating that whether she died then or shortly thereafter was not worth her honor and dignity. Released into the courtyard, she was beaten and stabbed to death by a mob assembled to execute those condemned by the tribunal with the words, let them go the victim unaware that this was actually a death sentence. The princess's body was beheaded, disemboweled, and her remains paraded through the city on pikes, this procession reaching the temple with the intent to display these grisly artifacts to the king and queen. Although she did not see this display, Marie Antoinette fainted upon hearing about the fate of her former friend. This killing and hundreds of others that occurred during this incident became known as the September Massacres. The process that doomed French royalty now began to accelerate. The National Convention, selected by a nationwide election, convened on September 20th and immediately abolished the monarchy. On the same day, French troops won a decisive battle at Valmy, not only repelling the Austro-Prussian advance, but forcing the invaders to retreat beyond the Rhine River. In response, the National Convention declared the First French Republic an official proclamation of a new national identity. The convention then turned to what exactly should be done with the members of the monarchy itself. Although many clamored for a public trial and even execution of Louis XVI, initially there was no consensus on this perspective, the less radical members of government believing that banishment would be less of an incitement to the rest of Europe, who would be horrified by violence administered to the king himself. In early October, the royal family was moved to the larger tower. Although redecorated, it was undoubtedly a prison with bars on the windows. Then, in November of 1792, an event occurred which ended any debate regarding the fate of the king. A locksmith came forward and reported that he helped install a secret iron strongbox in the wall of the Tuileries. This hiding place was used by Louis XVI to hide his most sensitive communications with political figures and bankers. These letters, highly embarrassing not only to the king, but also his correspondence, demonstrated both his disingenuous and manipulative attitudes, especially when discussing his potential escape. 
any resistance to a trial of Louis XVI completely dissipated. This proceeding began on December 3, 1792. Additionally, it was ordered that Louis would no longer have contact with either his children or wife. The charges were voluminous, mostly concerning the king's willingness to collude with foreign powers at the expense of France, especially as his own political power weakened. The vote to convict him was overwhelming, 691 in favor, none opposed, although some abstentions occurred. The vote to condemn was closer, but was passed as well as a rejection to suspend the sentence. Louis was told of this on January 20, 1793, only one day before the sentence was to be carried out. The former king, now addressed as Louis Capet, his actual family surname, would be executed by a form of punishment he helped devise as a more humane alternative to traditionally medieval methods of capital punishment, the guillotine. That evening, Marie Antoinette, her children, and Louis's sister had a final emotional farewell, his wife sobbing and his children wailing and finally refusing to let go of his legs until he promised to visit with them again in the morning, a promise he did not keep. At 5 a.m., he took his final communion, and then at 8 a.m., entered the carriage that would convey him to the Place de la Révolution, today the Place de la Concorde, where 20,000 spectators were assembled, Arriving at 10 a.m., through quiet streets of shops ordered shuttered by the government, Louis's hair was cut and his hands bound. Mounting the platform that included the guillotine, he attempted a lengthy address protesting his innocence. This was shut down by a sudden roll of military drums. He was quickly strapped to a plank and placed under the massive angled blade. When his executioner displayed the former monarch's severed head to the crowd, it was greeted with raucous joy. Back at the temple, Marie Antoinette was not formally told of her husband's death, but the noise and tumult from the street down below told her and her family everything they needed to know. From that day on, she received and wore black mourning clothes and descended into a hopeless depression. Another debate quickly began as to what should be done with her. Unfortunately, two fundamental influence would affect this outcome. Her nephew, the Austrian emperor, was not greatly attached to her personally, and a reputation as completely ineffectual diplomatically in matters of interest to Austria affected his perspective of an outright refusal to negotiate for her release. More importantly, the war against France had escalated with England, Spain, and Holland now also involved in the conflict. French military momentum against Austria was not only stalled, but the tide turned with Austria inflicting several defeats that once again threatened Paris itself. On July 3rd, Marie's status took an ominous turn when she was informed by her jailers that she was to be separated from her son. Additional Austrian victories now placed Paris in even greater danger. As a result, at 2 o'clock in the morning on August 2nd, Marie Antoinette was transferred to the Conciergerie, a much more secure and foreboding courthouse and prison. There was no attempt to spruce up her new environment or disguise its intent. The damp brick, bed, rudimentary chair, and bucket toilet of a prison cell. A hapless attempt by royal sympathizers within the prison, known as the Carnation Plot, only served to tighten the security around Marie Antoinette. From then on, armed sentries remained in her cell, subdivided with a simple wooden screen, which did little to protect Marie's modesty. The botched rescue was a convenient excuse for the Committee for Public Safety, an official entity literally charged with defending against foreign and domestic enemies, to secretly decide that the former queen should be executed.
only publicly orchestrating such an outcome remained. This process began when Marie Antoinette was privately interrogated on October 12th concerning matters involving treason, profligate spending, and the attempted escape to Varennes. Two attorneys were given one day to inspect the evidence and the document that formally charged Marie. Her written request to delay the proceeding was ignored, and she was taken on the morning of October 14th to the adjoining and massive Palais de Justice to face the charges against her, to wit, depletion of the national treasury, providing treasonous information to a foreign country, in this case Austria, conspiracy against the state, and even incest, her son forced to sign a statement stipulating such allegations. The trial was a sham, consisting of all sorts of scurrilous content, unworthy of a serious legal proceeding. Nevertheless, she was quickly convicted of the most serious charges and condemned to death. The hasty trial concluding at 4 o'clock in the morning of October 16th, her execution scheduled for noon on the very same day. The actual process of this execution was to be as humiliating as possible. She was allowed to write a letter to her sister-in-law, Elizabeth, who would be executed in similar fashion in 1794. Her request to dress in black was denied. She would be forced to wear a simple white dress with black stockings and worn plum-colored shoes. Denied a priest, she was forced to dress in the presence of her guards who gawked at her deliberately. She ate little of the food offered by her final servant, who bore witness to this ongoing torment. The executioner now entered her cell, chopped off much of her now completely white hair, and tightly and uncomfortably bound her hands behind her back. Instead of the carriage afforded her husband, she was placed in a simple cart and ordered to sit with her back to the horses. Despite the prison's proximity to the Place de la Révolution, it took an hour for the procession to make its way through the jeering crowd, the occasional sympathetic individual not daring to verbalize any empathy. The great French painter of the era, Jacques-Louis David, recorded a simple pen and ink portrait, the former princess of great beauty and elegance, now a haggard, miserable wretch, left with only her incredulous disdain. As she rapidly ascended the platform with what was left of her dignity, it seemed as if the 37-year-old Marie Antoinette only longed to hasten an end to her protracted suffering. At 12.15 p.m., she got her wish. Marie Antoinette's son and heir, the Dauphin, Louis Charles, already considered by royalist émigrés as the de facto Louis XVII, was treated just as brutally. After his mother's execution, he was placed in a solitary damp cell, fed through the bars with little interaction with his jailers. He endured such conditions for six months until the change in government allowed for the improvement of his confinement. By then he had contracted tuberculosis, the ailment which killed him on June 8, 1795, aged 10 years old. Only his sister, Maria Therese, was able to survive the excesses of the revolution, eventually exchanged for various French dignitaries imprisoned throughout Europe. France would then undergo the reign of terror, the ascendance of Napoleon, and the Napoleonic Wars that resulted in a restoration of the Bourbon dynasty in 1814. Louis XVI's brother, the Comte de Provence, was crowned Louis XVIII after Napoleon's exile to Elba. His reign interrupted by the 100 Days and Waterloo, he ruled until 1824, when he was succeeded by the Comte d'Artois, Louis XVI's youngest brother, as Charles X, a ruler so odious and reactionary that he prompted a second popular revolution 
an event that caused his abdication. Officially, his son, known historically as Louis XIX, reigned for 20 minutes, while Maria Therese, the daughter of Marie Antoinette, now married to the prospective king of France, begged him not to abdicate. He refused, signing off on any claim to the throne. But in this final flickering twilight of the French monarchy, Marie Antoinette's daughter reigned briefly as the last queen of France. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Marie Antoinette. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Marie Antoinette, The Journey by Antonia Frazier and Queen of Fashion by Carolyn Weber. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Thank you.